Saving money on your outdoor project? Now at Menards. We have everything you need to keep your outdoor power equipment running smooth so you can keep that lawn in tip-top shape or enjoy some time on your boat. Right now, all FVP, lawn and garden, and marine batteries are on sale through May 5th. Check out our entire selection of FVP batteries today and view our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals. Save big money at Menards. Oh, what have you done now? And welcome to Back to the Future, the podcast, the only podcast looking back in time at the greatest film trilogy of all time, Back to the Future. I am Brad Gilmore. I am joined by the friends in time, David G. Mitchell and Norman Binford. Davey Dave, how you doing? I am doing well on this lovely fine evening. And I'm going to say that's about it because I can't come up with a witty line right now. <laughs> You know, I was I was trying to come up with a witty line myself, but the the dentist has, has taken all of my wit away from me. And over there from State College, PA, Normie Norm, Norman Benford. Good evening, gentlemen. Uh, before we get kind of started with the, the finale to our Back to the Future Part 2 review, I had a realization today. <clears throat> the reason it was so critical for Marty and Doc to arrive in 2015 when they did because had they not intervened both marty jr and his sister would have been in jail and unable to go see star wars the force awakens ah uh, <laughs> that is true norm nothing gets by you nothing gets by normie norm benford wow hey we are we are close we are very close to the force awakens but that new trilogy of films will definitely be better than the prequel trilogy uh, and it will probably it might be better than the original trilogy but none of which are better than the back to the future trilogy which is what we are talking about today finally part three of our review of part two if that makes any sense um we are recapping back to the future part two um which one are, now I, i'm i'm going to always forget is it D- david is this your favorite uh, it was. Let it me just was say it was. Okay. Yeah, I mean, 
up until literally um, when I went to see it in the theaters on Future Day, I think you know part three overtook part two's um, on the list. You know, but, but we'll get to that. All right, yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there. Uh, but here we are, part three of our review. Now, when we last left off, Marty and Doc, uh, Marty just you know kind of tricked Biff, Biff Tannen, and Marty and Doc. We're getting ready to go back to November 12th, I believe, 1955. Now, David, when we stopped recording last week, you actually brought up something very interesting. So let's start with what you brought up last uh, last week after we went off the air, and then we'll go from there. Well, one of the most uh, important plot points that I don't think a lot of people would have noticed, but um, when uh, Marty gets back into the time machine and they, they tell Doc, he tells Doc they got to go back to 1955 because that's when young Biff gets the almanac, the time circuits, he, Doc turns the time circuits on, they start blinking, and just in the quick of a, quick of a flash, you might, you might even see it, the time circuits flash to January 1st, 1885. Doc bangs them and says, got to fix that thing. And then they go off on their business back to 1955. But this is a real, this is the first precursor to um, what happens to Doc at the end of part two. Yeah, it was, it was right there. Uh, I don't even know how we, we forgot to bring that up last time. But that was really where they planted the seed once again, like this movie was so good at. Is, is you know, Back to the Future Part Two was really a great bridge between the first and, and third films. But this was another uh, sequence in which they gave us that seed for the for the trilogy and the conclusion to this great story but they go back to 1955 to try to stop old biff or no to try to stop young biff or old biff either one we got to stop biff from getting the almanac pretty much and they come back to 1955 and and they did now is this where they end up they end up in the in like uh right over there by the line of states correct yeah, and uh, Doc has a suitcase full of money for all years <laughs> from, I don't know, from the 1600s to the present day or whatever. So. Whenever uh, I saw this as a, as a kid, I was so enamored with Doc Brown's money case. I was like that – to me, that was like one of the – I don't know what it is. Like when you're a kid and someone opens a briefcase full of money, you just lose your mind. You're like, what? People actually deal this way? <laughs> And he had money. Did he have money from like different countries as well? Like there were different currencies of of money um, and money from all years up into the eighties, I believe. Well, that would make sense. Yeah, yeah. You never know where so you're gonna I, go. I wonder. I wonder how far back the money in the money case goes, because it kind of begs the question that in part three, when Mad Dog Cannon is threatening to kill Doc <laughs> over his his shoot horse. Break out the money case, Doc. Put that to rest. <laughs> wow. Hey, I didn't even think about that. That's a pretty good catch That's there, a, Norm. It's Mar- a matter of principle, Norm. It's principle. <laughs> it's a principle. It wasn't his fault. Um, but here's another thing is, though, where does Doc get this money? Because in 85, he was kind of – he sunk all of his family fortune into designing this DeLorean time machine. The house was burned down. Where do, And, and – does this indicate Doc Brown traveled further back in time or, or traveled in time at different points that we are not aware of? Because remember, he did go to the future after the second, after the first movie. So we know he already went there first. And remember, he said he went up further. 
um, in, in time to see what happens with his sister. Did Doc travel through different time periods in that time uh, between the first and the second movie to get this money? Is that what happened, or am I reading too much into it? Uh, you know, I would almost think that he had to, to, to some degree. But we're, 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 we're jumping down the rabbit hole again. Yeah, I know. It's hard not to. It's hard not to. Um, but I was just reading a great breaking, uh, breaking news uh, message there on Twitter that has to do with this podcast that uh, we might have to leave as a cliffhanger for the listeners. I just <laughs> literally, real time, just got it. But anyway, um, Doc showing Marty all this money. He hands Marty some money from the 50s. And I think they hatched this plan to uh, go over to Old Biff's um, old old not Old Biff's but Biff from Fifty Fives, Young Biff's grandmother's house, I guess, to try to get um, the almanac back. And and Doc says, "Buy something inconspicuous, right?" And then next thing we know, Marty shows up in a in a fedora with sunglasses and a leather jacket. I guess that's very inconspicuous. Uh, uh, to Marty McFly. But then this is a great scene. I love this scene because we see Biff walking down the sidewalk and, uh, you know, he was leaving. To, I think, to, was he leaving to go pick up his car? I think is what he was doing. And then uh, these little kids have this ball that bounces over his way and he picks up. He's like, oh, you want your ball back? And then he just chunks it and throws it on top of someone's like porch or their awning to where these kids can't reach it. Which is what a, what a D-bag. I'll tell you what it was. It was interesting that they did that because when they showed Biff leaving his grandmother's house, I mean, she's just handpecking him and yelling and screaming at him, and you can almost feel a little sorry for Biff if this is what his life is—that he's just living with this old woman who's just constantly nagging at him and screaming at him. But then he goes and you know drop kicks the ball onto the roof and is like, nah, he's just a prick. But you bring up an interesting point, and David, I kind of want to get your take on this. Um, you know, the fact that they did that and they showed this is this is Biff and this is uh, why he is, you know, kind of like why he is who he is. Um, w- do you think this was Bob and Bob's way of kind of showing that, and then we'll see more in the next movie, that it's not so much that Biff is a jerk because he wants to be. It's kind of embedded in his DNA. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if there's any sympathy as such to be felt for Biff. It's just like it seems that all tannins throughout the family history are just, you know, I don't know, assholes, to, for lack of a better word, you know. And um, I don't know if you guys are familiar, but uh, I believe the voice of his grandmother is actually played by Tom Wilson, too, um, which is a testament to his acting skills. And also... The street where uh, Biff's grandma's house is on is actually the same street as George McFly's house too. But um, yeah, it's just you know as as the uh, the cartoon uh, later portrayed, like all tannins in the history of Hill Valley seem to be not very nice people. So it's just like it goes from bloodline to bloodline and from generation to generation that all tannins are not very nice people. Let's just say. Well, then we uh, we I guess we follow Biff. Over to uh, to his uh, to to go pick up his car from the manure that that he had uh, that he crashed into. He's going to pick up his car, Marty. Uh, now is this where? Yeah, this is where Marty 
goes into the jumps in the back of the car because he sees Biff coming back and he puts some kind of blanket over himself. And Biff is arguing with the guy who fixed his car. You know, it cost three hundred bucks damage to my car, whatever, whatever. And he throws the uh, oil cans in the back and right on to Michael J. Fox. And Michael J. Fox sells it like a million bucks. He sells it like Vince McMahon taking a Stone Cold Stunner. Those I always thought that those oil cans when I was a kid must have been super heavy. No pun intended. <laughs> They're probably empty, but yeah. <laughs> he sells it real good. You can just feel the pain. What are you saying, Norm? I say, look where they landed too, kind of in the crotchal area. The crotchular area of, of Michael J. Fox. And then this is where I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, David, is this where old Biff is sitting in uh, young Biff's car? Yeah, um, they have their they have their conversation with Terry, which is uh, you know a callback from part two with when we see all Terry. But uh, they're talking to each other, and we see Biff in the background, all Biff in the background from the future, talking about the manure. I remember that, and um, he actually sees uh, Lorraine and her friend walking down the street with the uh, the dress. If you remember, oh yes, uh, this is a great plot point as well because. He sees Lorraine walking down the street with her friend. She has the dress. She's saying how beautiful it is. And, um, you know, he says, why don't you go to the dance with me? And then, um, you know, what, you know, get it through your thick skull, Lorraine. Someday you're going to be my girl, right? And then she says, I wouldn't, I wouldn't marry you, Biff, even if you had a million dollars. And uh, that, was, that was what we call foreshadowing, kids, uh, because in the past <laughs> uh, she was saying not even if you had a million dollars, and then we see – in the future, she ends up marrying him because he has millions of dollars. Uh, you know, just another little small thing that might just be a line that's just a throwaway line to some other people. But Bob and Bob really took the time to put that line in there. And, you know, it, it, it it's a testament to their writing ability, really. I mean, to me, it's not just a small line. It's keeping the story and the storyline uh, well tightly knit. I mean, just everything is paying off like that first movie did everything paid off and i really i really think this is a testament to bob and bob's writing ability wouldn't you say norm yes absolutely and like you said it it bridges the first and third movie so well and they just they had the benefit of foresight working on both of these at the same time two and three at the same time and it really gave them an opportunity to you know, to, to plant some seeds, to throw some Easter eggs in there. And they just, they knew where they were going and they very, very carefully laid out some clues for us and, you know, to, to get us there with them. No, yeah, I mean, this was just a perfectly done thing. But anyway, Biff, though, turns around and he goes and he goes to his car and he sees old Biff sitting in there and uh, he said, get out of my car, Gramps. And then he said, no one can start this car but me, obviously. And uh, then Biff, old Biff starts the car, and he says, get in, Tannen. Uh, and when he said, get in, Tannen, I do want to say that old Biff kind of scared me a little bit. He seemed so serious when he said, get in, Tannen. And then uh, they said they were family friends or whatever, and then they get inside. Uh, young Biff gets inside. They go back to Biff's grandmother's house, and this is where the scene was where old Biff – gives young Biff the almanac. And David, why don't you kind of walk us through this scene a little bit and, and kind of go th- with the dialogue of what of what was going on between old Biff, young Biff. 
Well, um, not going word for word, but uh, all Biff is trying to persuade or trying to convince young Biff that this uh, almanac is the real deal, and Biff is trying to... He's not he's, Young Biff is not really believing him. He's tossing it in the back seat, and Marty thinks he can grab it, but before Marty can grab it, all Biff grabs it back. And to prove his point, they um, turn on the radio game, or a football game on the radio, I should say, and uh, it's about to finish, and all Biff says, I bet you, um, I think UCLA scores... Uh, the winning goal, and he goes, you're crazy, old man, they're going to lose, wait, and he goes, wait till you see this, and uh, as it turns out, the, uh, the, win- the the losing team scores at the last minute, they win the game, and then that's when young Biff finally uh, realizes, how do you know that, and then that's when old Biff explains, this is the real deal, all you have to do is um, bet on a winner every time, and you'll be a lot richer, and I think that's when it sinks in, and that's when young Biff realizes, hey, this might be uh, something very serious going on. Yeah. And just a, a, as an interesting aside, I know this definitely predates you, Brad, and I'm not sure about you, David, but uh, once again, as the resident old man, when Comedy Central first launched, they were, I forget, they were called either the Comedy Channel or the Comedy Network, and they were kind of just showing clips from movies in the kind of the style and rotation that MTV was showing music videos at the time, this scene in between uh, old Biff and young Biff in the garage with Marty in the back of the trunk was on constantly. It was just, they, they played it to death, but it was still enjoyable just because of this is where we start to see Marty traveling back through the plot of the first movie. This this obviously didn't happen in the first movie, but where they started doing that split screen with uh, Tom Wilson acting a scene with himself, which you know what? Talk about the special effects; they still hold up. So, but it was just interesting that this scene got played over and over and over again. I wonder what the uh, what the reasoning was for that, but the special effects do hold up. Uh, phenomenally. I mean, especially because, correct me if I'm wrong, this technology was created for this movie uh, especially. I mean, this was just for this movie that they, ILM, designed uh, the camera to have the same actor play multiple characters in one scene. So, I mean, this was kind of groundbreaking stuff. And for this to be like the first incarnation or the first rendition of this special effect and for it to hold up all the way in 2015 that's pretty sweet but young biff finally believes uh old biff about the almanac and you know he says uh you know i'll take a look at it and he's like you have a safe no you don't have a safe get a safe and then so they start to uh walk out and then this is where the dropped line happens once again and old biff says hey if uh, one day, someday, <laughs> one of these kids, you know, a, a, a crazy old man who claims to be a scientist or a young kid <laughs> is going to come asking about that book. And if that happens, and, you know, then then it just kind of goes, they, the sound fades off into the distance. And Marty then says to Doc, you know, I'm, I'm stuck in the garage in Biff's car, but, you know, young Biff has the book or whatever. But I know where he's going to. The Enchantment Under the Sea Dance. Now, while all this is happening, what do you think Doc is doing? Uh, wasn't he trying sure. to fix the DeLorean or something? I mean, what's wrong with the DeLorean? Oh, no, he was just trying to um, avoid running into his other self, maybe, I think. That's why he was hanging out over by the line of states, I oh, think. Oh, yes. Hey, great plot point that we forgot to mention. 
Doc did tell Marty before he started to go off on this adventure that, you know, you got to be careful not to run into your other self. Remember, there are two of you here and there are now two of me here. So we got to uh, be careful because we don't want to cause a paradox, right? Um, so maybe maybe Doc's just camped out and he doesn't want to run into uh, his younger self, which, by the way, Doc is like Strickland. I mean, he doesn't age. He looks no different 30 <laughs> years prior than he does in 85. I mean, it's just ridiculous. But anyway, um, he knows where he's going. He knows Biff is getting ready to go to the Enchantment Under the Sea dance. I mean, just everything happens on November 12th, 1955. So uh, Marty, Marty, uh, I guess, what what happens? Does Marty tail Biff to the dance or does he wait on him in the garage? He's he's still in the car. He's still in the car. Yes, he he hides in the car because he got locked in the garage. And I now realize at least one thing Doc did while Marty was locked in the garage. He stole somebody's bicycle. <laughs> okay, so that's interesting. Did, is, did he steal it? Is that what happened? Unless, unless he has a bicycle case with bicycles, you know, throughout different parts of time that he can just whip one out for 1955 and take off. For some, reason, for some reason, I always thought that he might have... Uh, bought that bike with all that money. That's what I always thought in my head, but I guess he may have stolen it. Or maybe he did buy it. I didn't even think of that. Who but knows? at some point, he secures a bicycle. Yeah, he finds a way. And it's a, it's like, obviously a little kid's bike, because he's way too big for it. It has a bell that I always love that he's like, isn't he ringing the bell on the bike as he's coming into the driveway? As if to <laughs> like... <laughs> As if to like warn people that he's in, in the he's coming in, or that he's just such a kid at heart that he's doing this anyway because he's having fun. Like it was actually kind of a nice little touch of by Christopher Lloyd just to add a little bit to the character, and it, it always made me laugh that he did that. But he goes into the garage, and he and Marty are speaking through walkie-talkie, and Marty uh, says he's in the back of Biff's car, and Biff's I think in this when he's listening to Mama loves Mambo, Papa loves Mambo, right? And then um he's going through the uh. Through the tunnel. Is this the right scene? Yes. Because they go in the tunnel and then the walkie-talkies are cut off. Yes. And then they end up at the Enchantment Under the Sea dance. And this is where all hell breaks loose. Um, This is where we really truly go back into the first movie. And the scenes are – some are reshot, I believe. And then there's some that are put in from the first movie. Uh, I think Michael J. Fox was it. Was Michael J. Fox when he's playing Johnny B. Good in the second movie? For the most part, those were scenes from the first movie, correct? And he had to re you know had to refilm some insert shots for the sequel. Is that right, David? No, it was definitely uh, refilmed the Johnny B. Good scene because you can tell. Way? Well, I think for the most part because oh, wow. his hair is definitely a lot longer and. Um, you know, there's a behind-the-scenes documentary I remember seeing, and um, he was talking about how he couldn't do all the slides anymore that he used to five years ago and uh, jumping around with the guitar and stuff. So they filmed a lot of it uh, for for part two. But uh, there may have been one or two, like, maybe far-distance shots, but for the most part, I think it was uh, all redone. My, my recollection of that is also the same, David, that they did uh, refilm almost that entire scene. Okay, well then, then I was wrong. I thought they used a lot of uh, inserts from the first movie because to me it looked really identical. But here we are. I think they would have had to because uh, they had Michael J. Fox up on the rafters as well because the goons are going to jump Marty playing guitar because they think it's him. 
You know, remember that? Oh, yes, yeah. and I, I think they had to probably block a lot of the scenes just a little bit differently to accommodate for Marty 2 interacting with Marty 1 and the rest of 1955. Oh, well, there you go. That makes that makes a lot of sense. Now, one thing that I want to I want to uh, bring up that I've always found interesting, and I've heard this rumor before, and this this theory um, about about this movie. So, at the at the Enchantment Under the Sea dance, we see Biff and his goons spiking the punch with alcohol, and y'all, y- I mean, y'all recall this, correct? Yes. Okay. So, though in Back to the Future Part 1, George is actually shown drinking the punch before confronting Biff in the parking lot. The rumor has it that it may, it may be that George's uncharacteristic courage in the original scene is uh, attributed to drinking Biff's spiked alcoholic punch. <laughs> what do you think about that, David? That is incredible. I can't believe I've never thought about that before. So the reason Biff's downfall was his own doing for spiking the punch, that is brilliant. I think I think that this uh, this uh, theory holds some weight, wouldn't you say, Norm? Yeah, uh, absolutely. He just might have had uh, some, some beer muscles McFly action going on and just a little more likely to throw caution to the wind. Exactly. I, 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 when I read that for the first time, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. This makes so much perfect sense. But anyway, we see him uh, pouring the, uh, the alcohol into the punch, and this is where I believe we see Strickland again. And Strickland is, is looking over at what Biff is doing, and uh, I think Biff kind of runs away a little bit from Strickland, and then they encounter each other outside. Now, mind you, Marty is keeping a, a look at everything that's going on. I think at one point, um, I think he sees himself. Anyway, so he goes uh, over to uh, where Biff and Strickland are talking, and uh, we see uh, Strickland, I think, is grilling Biff about, uh, what is that, uh, homework? And he was like, uh, this ain't homework because I ain't at home, uh, which is you know, a fantastic <laughs> retort. And also, he says, is that liquor I smell, Tannin? And then Biff's such a great jackass. He goes, well, I wouldn't know, Mr. Strickland, because I'm too young to drink liquor, so I wouldn't know what it smells like. I'm like, oh, oh, you're really laying it on thick right here. Now, this is, though, the scene where if you pay close attention, you'll see the trickery that went on. Um, but Strickland takes uh, the magazine out of, out of the almanac, out of, out of Biff's back pocket, and he says, what's this, Tannen? Sports statistics? And he starts flipping through it. Now, you, the camera shows Strickland flipping through it, and, but the images are a little blurred. But uh, if you look closely, you can make out that this is definitely not a sports magazine because you see pictures of girls throughout um, the magazine. Did, did you pick up on this, David? Um, probably not the first few viewings of it, but obviously the millions of other viewings I've seen over the years, you obviously pick up that it's the uh, the Ula La magazine that we find out later on. But that's probably the purpose or probably the reason why. So after when we talk about the next scene, what's going to happen when Marty, you think Marty does get the almanac back and it's actually the wrong thing. So it's just a, a switch and bake kind of thing. Exactly. Um, you know, uh, but anyway, so we see we see him take the uh, the almanac away and Marty thinks he's home free, right? Marty's like, oh, 
good lord, um, I'm going to get this uh, almanac. Now, is this the part where Michael J. Fox, uh, as Marty from Marty B, we'll call him Marty B, as Marty B is creeping under the car in which he and his mother are inhabiting before the dance? Is this what we see next, correct? Yes. And this uh, is the next scene. And then, you know, and then I think, you know, it was something like, uh, oh, I'd like to have that in writing. And then Marty B goes, yeah, me too. And <laughs> I, he was just interplay with himself from the first movie. I still got to give Bob Zemeckis credit for this because what a hell of a headache to have to put yourself through to film, you know, scenes, refilm scenes, and then insert another character in a senior I film from a first movie that you're making a sequel to in which you go back to the first. I mean, just... What a mind warp that has to be trying to film this thing. I don't know how he stayed on the straight and narrow, but it's but it's magic. It really is. These these are some of my favorite scenes in the whole trilogy. So while while my answer may change on any given day, which my favorite one is, this is my favorite part of part two. You you know you know Bob Zemeckis considers this movie one of his favorite films and one of the strangest films that he ever made and I think it's because of this reason because you're trying to balance all these timelines out and and tell this one story but you just you 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 do it to yourself by the complexity level of the story but I mean it is just fantastic uh the way they were able to weave all this together but we see uh Marty enter the office of Strickland and this is something I've never understood is how does Strickland this whole time, you know, this three minute, three and a half minute scene, how does he not see Marty uh, in his office? Like, uh, Marty's a great sleuth, but he's not that good. He's dressed inconspicuous, but he's not dressed in camouflage. I would always think if someone was sitting under my desk, I would just feel their presence among me, or I'd hear their breathing, or something would have to happen. Uh, maybe this isn't the uh, the first mug of liquor that Strickland has had this evening. Oh, you think he's a little uh, a little woozy? Do you think Strickland is? Possibly. It makes sense. It does lot, make lot, sense. That there, we, we seem to be discovering more and more bad drinking decisions in 1955 right now. Yeah, it's just a P- you know Back to the Future Two is just a big PSA of don't drink, kids, and bad things won't happen to you. Um, but uh, so in our good things could happen to you depending on how you look at it. But um. Anyway, Marty's like under the desk. He sees the almanac. He's trying to get it. He's reaching for it. At one point, Strickland rocks back his wooden chair against Marty's wooden fingers, um, against a uh, wooden fingers, against his fingers that are against the wooden desk. And I don't know if any of y'all have ever just jammed your finger in a door or something like that. But like, that's a great way to feel sympathy for Marty because you know, to good God, that hurt. And uh, once again, fantastic selling job of pain by Michael J. Fox. He's a great physical comedian as well as uh, just a, a great actor. I mean, the way he sells some of this stuff with the face is it's really it's really quite good. I mean, some of his uh, reactions. I think that actually is kind of the story of Michael J. Fox, isn't it? He's kind of a great reactor. I mean, wouldn't you say that's one of his strongest strengths, David? Is just reacting to the situation instead of yeah yeah. yeah go ahead. Sorry, it's just um, that's probably partly the reason why Eric Stoltz didn't work as well because he, he wasn't bringing the right amount of comedy to the role. And you know, it's all about you know 
Marty's reactions from Doc telling him about, you know, you built a time machine out of a DeLorean. And, you know, there's so many other instances of just him reacting, whether it be in the 50s and or in the future. He's a great physical, I don't want to use the word comedian, but yeah, he's top-notch performance. But going back to this scene, um, number one, I didn't really like it too much. Uh, it's very long and dragged out and I think too dragged out, but... As much as I love these movies and I love these trilogies, and I, I don't want to, um, I don't want to bash it, or whatever. But there is no way in hell that uh, Marty wouldn't let out a scream when Strickland rolled back his fingers. I mean, come on! Like, I don't know how hard you're trying to be quiet or put his hat in your mouth. There's no way you wouldn't let any sort of noise off when he rolls back on them fingers. What do you think? It, it uh, uh, agreed because that that scene plays out. It looks so horrifically painful. Like you 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 can almost feel the pain yourself. You just see Marty pull that mangled hand that looks like a half dead spider and just grip <laughs> at it and and just make that horrible reaction to it. But yeah, I I'm, I'm on the same page with you. It, it stretches it stretches the believability a little bit. Yeah. No, yeah, I'm kind of with you on that as well. But um, we do see Strickland being nosy, looking out, talking about slackers, whatever he's doing. And then he uh, he leaves the office. And this is where Marty, he leaves the almanac right there. Marty thinks he's home free. We think he's home free. This is it right here. Uh, Marty's about to be home free with Doc, and they're going to get out of there and go back to 1985, and everything's going to be back to normal. Marty grabs the almanac after... Uh, Strickland throws in the trash can, and quickly he flips through it, and he realizes that this is not the almanac. This is ooh-la-la. And I just love the way Michael J. Fox reacts to this. Ooh-la-la! Ooh-la-la! You know, just once again, his reacting is is out of this world great. It really is. He, and he does. He's certainly not a comedian, but he has impeccable comedic timing. Oh, which, it's which I don't know if you've ever seen many episodes of Family Ties, but boy, did he carry that show just with his comedic timing. He always knew how to wait before delivering a line, and it really is one of the things that made it a great series. You know, I'm glad you real quick brought up Family Ties because this was a piece of trivia that I uh, remember that I didn't bring up uh, last uh, time on the show, is that in the Cafe 80s, they're showing scenes from a bunch of uh, 80s television sitcoms, and two of which included Family Ties and Taxi. So I thought that was a nice little uh, touch there. Oh, yeah, that is good. I That's not something that I was totally familiar with. It's always great to learn something new. Oh, you learn something new all the time with these movies. So Marty figures out it's ooh-la-la. He starts talking with Doc, letting him know. Hey, ooh la la, this isn't the book. You know, it must, Biff still must have it. And then, um, but you know, I don't know where he's going to be. And then he somehow, from inside the school, inside uh, Strickland's office, somehow he hears his, uh, his dad and Biff having an argument. How the hell could he hear that? I think he more saw it than hear that, you know. Well, see the, well I, uh, guess, I guess I remember, like, he, he sees it, but he can hear. We At least we can hear the audio from them. I don't know how the hell he could hear the uh, audio from all the way in there. But anyway. It was, it's, I have the perfect answer to that question, Brad. It's quiet outside because it's the calm before the storm. 
Oh, Normie Norm comes through again with the killer line. Um, but we know this is happening, so <coughs> Marty then uh, says, you know, my dad's about to deck Biff. And so then uh, we cut back to that scene from the original uh, movie. Now, this we know is the original scene because, of course, Crispin Glover was not in the sequel. Um, and we see him deck Biff once again. And this is where after he decks Biff and they uh, Jeffrey Wiseman and uh, Lorraine walk away. This was an insert shot because Jeffrey Wiseman did uh, film scenes for this scene, obviously. Uh, and they walk away together. Um, we see Marty run up to Biff, who's laying knocked out. And uh, he uh, grabs the almanac. And, you know, <laughs> I love how Marty's like saying, it's okay, I know CPR. And that one dude who I recognize from so many things goes, "What? what's CPR? And then uh, Biff wakes up and he goes, you son of a bitch. And Marty just decks him in the face. And no <laughs> one react, No one reacts to him decking him in the face. The thing they say is, I think he stole his wallet. I, I love the wallet line. And, and I love how they find ways to hit it like two or three times before the movie's over. I think he took that guy's wallet. I mean, just but like no one reacts like in the what world is CPR punching someone in the face? And, and I know they didn't know what CPR was, so I guess it was a foreign technique. But now Marty is in possession of the almanac. What do we see next, David? Marty's in possession of the almanac. Um... And actually, I believe we we skipped over the the quick scene where. Future Doc meets his 1955 counterpart. Okay, yeah, I was just kind of following the Enchantment on the Sea dance. Let's go to that. Um, Norm, set the scene for us. Uh, I believe Doc is still on his his bought, possibly stolen bicycle when he sees his 1955 counterpart setting up the rigging to capture the lightning that strikes the clock tower to send Marty back to the future. And... Doc can't seem to resist himself, and despite warning Marty to try to avoid his future or past self, he still has to somehow go talk to 1955 Doc and recommend a wrench size to him, and they talk about a quote-unquote weather experiment, and it, it was it's a good scene. It's a short scene, but I just think it's kind of funny that Doc has warned Marty so many times that the consequences could be disastrous, and then yet here he is returning to the scene of the crime to talk to himself. Yeah, I mean, just what, how great is that? And just like the fact that, uh, you know, he finds a way to never turn around and show him his face. And like, I don't know, I would recognize my own voice if I heard it. You know, I would, and you know, and if someone had a similar hairstyle to me, I think I'd recognize them. Uh, but you know, it's just the innocence of the movie, and, it, and it's really sweet um, how that uh, how all that goes down, and you know, just the interaction. It must also be hard acting without anyone there, and then having to reshoot it, and then act like you're reacting to someone else. That's got to be extremely difficult. It's part of the magic of part two. But uh, so, what do we see next, though? After Marty takes Biff's wallet, David, he runs off and. <laughs> I'm actually drawing a bit of a blank here, but doesn't he get in touch with Doc and say um, he has the almanac and um, he said, he said, I'll meet you on the roof of the... Uh, yeah, they're going to meet on the roof. Meet on the roof. Of the, and then um, you get Marty gets knocked out by himself coming out of uh, 
the dance from part one. Oh yeah, that is what happened. Now, um, when when do they? Uh, at, at some point, oh, that's what happened. So he knocks him out, but don't they start running at? Don't Biff's goons start going after the other Calvin Klein? Yes, they get that's. I'm sorry, Dave. Marty B. They, uh, that's what I was. No, I, yeah, I'm just. It's coming back to me now. I think they see Marty B. in the hat and the leather jacket, and uh, they chase after him. And he goes into the dance, and then they see Marty A. on stage singing "Johnny Be Good," and they think that's him. And a classic Billy Zane line, line saying, "How did he change his clothes so fast?" So uh, that's when Marty gets in touch with Doc, and he says, "Oh, um, they're gonna jump me." And then Doc says, "Well, get out of there." Well, not me. The other me was on stage playing "Johnny Be Good." Great but Scott. um and he goes oh that the consequences could be disastrous you'll miss the clock tower and you'll never get back to the future and a paradox and blah 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 so marty b has to stop the goons from getting marty a and that's what he does he does that big tension scene with the sandbags and that's when he comes out of the uh the, the dance and um he gets knocked out by himself from part one that yeah there we are now now it's come full circle now biff sees both of them and then um, and uh, he picks up Marty B, who's in the leather jacket, and uh, they have some words with each other. Now, did Biff Biff punches Marty, right? He kicks him. He kicks him while he's down. Kicks him while he's down. That's what happens. You you steal my stuff. Yeah, they kicks him, takes him back, and uh, I guess he's leaving the dance. I think he's had enough um, of the enchantment under the sea dance, and I think he gets back in his car. And Marty then – Marty – does Marty jump into his – now I'm confused. I've confused myself. Where does – where? where right. how does Marty get back in the car? Right. Marty gets knocked out by himself from part one who comes out and he whacks him in the door. So Biff sees Marty be on the floor, sees the almanac. He takes it, says, you steal my stuff, kicks him, and then he says, this is from my car. Boom, another kick. So um, Biff gets in his car, gets, uh, gets going, and then Marty wakes up and says uh, – he gets stuck on the on the walkie-talkie. He says, "Biff jumped me." He took the Almac too, and he goes, uh, "Which way did he go?" And uh, that's when they meet on the roof, and they follow Biff in the DeLorean in, uh, in in Biff's car. That's where they're trailing him then. And the the DeLorean, which in a bit of foreshadowing, picked up uh, that string of pennants from the Lion Estate sign, a scene behind mm. the the multicolored flags. Yes. Yeah. Th- that become very important in the the not too distant future. <laughs> oh yes, yes they do. Um, so anyway, this is uh, where uh, Marty and, uh, and 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 Biff kind of have their ultimate showdown, if you will. Um, they're they're in that tunnel. Marty has his hoverboard, oh. I believe, right? Yeah, they're they're trailing Biff in the DeLorean, and Marty suggests to land on him, and Doc says he's in a 46 Ford, we're in a DeLorean, he'll crush through us like tinfoil, and uh, so Marty gets out on his hoverboard, he he grabs onto the back of Biff's car, and that's when they're trailing, uh, he's trailing the hoverboard, and they go through the tunnel then, and that's where they have their little showdown. That's where they have the showdown, and this is where Marty, um, you know, Biff thinks he's going to get Marty, Uh, Marty kind of outsmarts Biff. Um, by once again the uh, you know after, after some dramatic tension of course and some uh, feature film flair we do see the the string of, of flags drop down Doc uh, from Doc from the you know where he picked it up from the line of states Marty grabs it 
They go up. Biff crashes into a what, Norm? I believe that would be a thing filled with manure. Oh, yes, a manure. He crashed into some more manure. Was it, was it a cart or was it a truck? I think I it was forget. a truck of manure. Right, David? D. Jones, yeah. Yeah, D. Jones manure. Fresh, freshly ground. Uh, better than your early morning coffee. And uh, they get the book. I think that now, now they get the book and they go back to uh, where the Lion Estates are, and they uh, they put the book into the uh, into a pail, some kind of pail, and then set it on fire. And I don't know why I said pail and not bucket, but they put it into a pail. <laughs> they set it well, that, on that's, fire. That's why garbage cans used to look like in elementary schools back <laughs> in the seventies, Brad. <laughs> a garbage pail. Um, yeah. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> I can't believe I said that. Anyway, he uh, burns it. They see the uh, the newspaper j- change from George McFly murdered to George McFly honored. Uh, bi- uh, uh, Doc sees it change from uh, committed to uh, commended, which was a great change there. And then mm-hmm. the uh, Biff Bi- Biffco Tower changes to uh, I think Biff uh, t- auto auto detailing, and uh, everything's mm-hmm. everything is great. And uh, then. Lightning strikes. We see that's a great line. Uh, Marty says, "Let's that everything's fixed now. Let's get our asses back to the." F-. And as soon as he says "future" or before he says it, Doc gets uh, struck by lightning. Yeah, uh, didn't he say, "Be careful! You don't want to get struck by lightning." <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> sorry. Yeah, that that's that's what cuts him off. Yeah, yeah, that's what. That's it was. A- yeah, I mean, it, it it was great, and then he he sees he sees him go, and then he, and this is where he kind of you. As, as when you're watching the movie, you kind of start to go like, "Well, what the hell is going on here?" You know, Doc's gone, Marty's stuck in '55 again, and all hope is lost because he doesn't have a time machine. Uh, it, it begins to rain very heavily because you know this is the famous Hill Valley lightning storm. And which, by the way, how small of a town do you have to be to have a famous lightning storm? Um, and then. We see a car pull up. Now, for some reason, when I first saw this movie a few times, I like completely don't. I didn't remember this scene, and then uh, I remember watching it. It must have been six, seven, eight years ago, and I and I for some reason completely forgot about this scene. And uh, a car pulls up in the rain. The door opens. You see an umbrella. Um, a gentleman wearing a, a top hat and a long you know, trench coat gets out. He's, he's- can we dare say that he is also dressed inconspicuously? <laughs> that he is. He's dressed inconspicuously. <laughs> You're not exactly sure what he's doing, what who he is. He kind of looks like a mafioso type guy. I'm not really sure. And he's very intimidating. McFly? And then Marty's just looking at him like, what the hell is going on here? And he says, are you Marty McFly? And then he says, yeah, I got something for you. And he reaches into his coat like he's going to pull out a gun. And then he just does the most cheesy sell of all. A letter. A letter. Then, you know, and then um, they start reading the letter. And I think he said he had a, a bet going on with a couple of his friends. Looks like he lost. They've had this letter in their possession for the last 70 years. And then he, he kind of quickly reads through it and sees who it's from. And it's from the doc. He says, it's from the doc. The doc's alive. He's alive. So, you know, uh. And then he goes, son, what, what does all this mean? 
He's like, well, there's only one man who can help me. And then it flashes to a scene from the first movie where Doc is on top of the clock tower and slides down to uh, plug it back in so that Marty can go back to the future. You see the fire trails. Doc's excited because it worked. It worked. And then um, it's, a, it's a great, just kind of a great jubilant yell from Christopher Brown that he, when he's, you know, he's running down the street, just kind of screaming in celebration again. Just Sorry, who's the, Christopher Brown? Yeah. Who's Christopher yeah. Brown? Chris, Christopher Lloyd. <laughs> but Sorry, it just, it's just, it's, uh, it's deserved, but it's just the, the joy and enthusiasm with which he throws himself into this character. I love it. Yeah. But then, so you see Marty go back to the future. The fire trails come in front of the movie theater. And as soon as Doc starts to walk towards his automobile to get the hell out of there, he sees what to me might be, and I'm not even joking, just my favorite visual of the entire series. is you see the fire trails, Marty's gone. His Doc's job is accomplished. And then you see Marty B running through the fire trails, um, which he may have, he got, he had to run a long ass way. I'm sure he was out of breath, but, um, he, he runs through the fire trails and he says, doc, doc. And then, you know, it's, what's great about Christopher Lloyd is he doesn't react immediately. Like, it's like, he doesn't understand what's going on. He's like, what, what? And he goes, it's me, doc. It's me. It's Marty. And then that's when doc really freaks out. <gasps> it can't be. I just sent you back to the future. He goes, I know doc, you did, you did, but I'm back. I'm back from the future. And then the music just kind of leads you to kind of crescendos to Christopher Lloyd saying, great Scott. Hmm. And then he, uh, he passes out and it says to be concluded. Um, what a fantastic film. Uh, the, the, the latter portion of the movie, I think is the strongest. Um, but guys, let's, let's reflect for a second on, on back to the future part two. Um, Definitely gets critically, uh, you know, gets the most critical bashing um, out of all three of them. And after looking back at the movie, I completely disagree with any, you know, uh, bad reviews of this film. This film is tightly, you know, the story is tightly woven. There's seeds for the sequel. There's great callbacks to the first one. Like even something as simple as when Marlene hears... uh, Jennifer uh, McFly come home and she says, Mom, Mom, is that you? Which is the exact line that Marty says every time he wakes <laughs> up to his mother. Uh-huh. I mean, everything about this movie to me is just firing on all cylinders. And um, after reviewing it, this this one this one might be. It might be my favorite. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> it might be my favorite. After talking about it, um, David, I mean, what say you? Yeah, it, it changes, really changes day to day. But you know, talking in particular about part two, I mean, the first, the first third of the movie, I mean, all the stuff in the future, I still love it. Um, it still maybe just harkens back to when I was a kid and, and the visions of the future. But I love the whole, you know, the gadgets, the hoverboards, the self drying jackets, and stuff like that. The middle part it slows a bit down. And that's when, you know, your attention drip, drops off a little bit. But then at the last act, you know, where they're trying to get the almanac back and, you know, you wonder what's going to happen. And Marty, a duck gets struck by lightning and then it leaves you on the cliffhanger of part three. That's when it, it kicks back into gear and you're like, oh, I can't wait for part three now. But, yeah, it really changes day to day. But um, 
it's it's still it's still a great movie. You can't you can't say call it a bad movie at all. Norm. Now, and I I think and if if you'll recall, Brad, when we first started talking, I don't know if it was just the beginning of this season or when we first started. Well, no, I guess it would have been the beginning of the season. I I indicated the fact that my favorite scene in the trilogy is also the end of part two where Marty comes ripping down the street and the orchestra has kicked up. And honestly, at that point for me, that's when these movies went from what were already great movies to, to epic movies, to, to just legendary, like without even the benefit of having seen part three yet, you could tell that they really, really put a lot of love and attention into these movies and it was just firing on all cylinders at that point. It it really was, and this movie—I mean—it was really well put together. Um, I'm going to pose a really difficult question to all three of us right now. Um, David, I'm gonna start with you. If you had to give this movie a score out of 100, what are you giving it? Out of 100, jeez, uh, I'm gonna say 74. Seventy four. I don't know why. Seventy four. Yeah. All right, Norm. Uh, I just want to preface it. The critics give it a sixty two percent on Rotten Tomatoes and a fifty seven on Metacritic. Oh, I was honestly closer to two eighty five, just because there there are like David alluded to earlier a few scenes that drag on a little bit, but. I, I keep. I feel like I'm being over effusive in my praise, but this is this is master storytelling. It really is. Yeah, it's great. I'm going to give it an 88, which is the uh, speed oh. you must reach <laughs> to travel. Very good in time. But uh, what a great, what a great film. What a great season. Uh, Norm, David, I, I do want to say thank you for joining me on this on this great journey for this season two. Uh, it's been great getting to talk back to the future with the both of you. And getting to know both of you as well, um, you know, I, I, we are we are truly friends in time now, and uh, it's just another another example of how Back to the Future continues to impact people to this day. You know, bringing three complete strangers together and uh, becoming friends in time throughout this process. But guess what, guys? It's not over. No it's way. To, it's to be concluded, and we will be doing that season three of Back to the Future. The podcast where we will look at maybe after we talk about it, it's probably that one's probably going to be my favorite film uh, of, of the trilogy. But we're going to talk about Back to the Future Part Three, which when I was a kid, definitely by far was my favorite of the three. Uh, we'll see if that holds up in time. But uh, until then, I'm Brad Gilmore. He's Davy Boy Mitch, aka David G Mitchell. That's Norman Benford, and we will see you in the future.
Brad Gilmore Show On Demand is meant for entertainment purposes only and does not mean to infringe on any copyrights of Back to the Future, its characters, its audio clips, or its music. Hope to see you again in the future. Save big money now on new siding from LP Smart Side at Menards. Update and beautify your home with your choice of 13 timeless colors of pre-finished engineered siding. It's durable and includes a Sherwin-Williams factory finish paint warranty that means no painting for years to come. View our entire selection of siding from LP Smart Side today. And don't forget to check out our flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards. 